Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we are going to be hearing from a champion for women in music, the founder of Daisy Rock Guitars, Tish Siravello. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. Well, welcome back, everybody. We are really excited to uh, be back in the uh, the audio world. Uh, we did our first video podcast. I hope you guys got a chance to check that out. And there's talk, there's rumors that there might be some more coming down. But uh, for now, we're back to audio and I'm really super excited about spending some time talking about Tish and her amazing journey in the music industry, uh, not only as a performer, but as an innovator of musical instruments. And of course, as Mike said at the top, a great champion and advocate for especially women and girls playing musical instruments. So this is a really neat and exciting opportunity for us. Uh, And saying for sure is definitely accurate here since uh, Tish was quite the valley girl, as she calls herself in the beginning. Uh, So we're going to start off this uh, podcast with hearing from her talking a little bit about her uh, background growing up as a valley girl in Northern California, and how she got into playing the bass and the love of playing music and trying to kind of figure her place out in the music industry. So here is Tish. You know, it's a really interesting story. Uh, I grew up in the 70s as a Valley Girl in Northern California, and uh, my best friend, Barbara Hoy, played guitar in the ninth grade. And um, she came from a big family of Catholic family, and her dad and her mom played banjo, and all the kids played something, and their house was always really fun and a lot of activity and, you know, music and in and out, and, you know, this is before you couldn't let your kid walk down the street by themselves like it is today. So we were all over the town all the time taking guitars to the park and having a good time, and she taught me how to play. And... um, and it was a lot of fun, you know. This is this is the '70s. This was Led Zeppelin and Queen, and you know. And uh, I was a Valley Girl before Moon Zappa was a Valley Girl, and we loved Jackson Brown, and we loved ZZ Top, and you know Fleetwood Mac. I was like, oh my God, a girl and Bonnie Raitt playing guitar. That was like, wow, what, <laughs> you know? And because um, we were West Coast, we didn't hear so much about the Runaways, which was more East Coast. I didn't hear about the Runaways till the '80s. And it was just a, like, I remember my teenagers being really a phenomenal, like a lot of music and a lot of sun and a lot of fun. And then my girlfriend that played guitar that kind of showed me how to play acoustic guitar and that was really cool. My family, uh, my mom played accordion and I was an only child at that time. So there was never anybody at my house. Barbara always wanted to go to my house to watch the Hardy Boys because, (laughs) you know, we could like hang out and watch without anybody disturbing us. And at her house it was, you know, you couldn't rule the television at all. So we hung out. We hung out. It was a really good time. I remember it being um, a lot of fun. And um, my mom played the accordion, like I was saying. And when I was growing up, uh, my mom was a Pentecostal preacher. 
And so in my formative years, my very early years, I had grown up going to a lot of church revivals, a lot of Pentecostal tent revivals. My real father, whom I've never known, it was an actual preacher, and they were married, you know, divorced when I was two, um, and preached the gospel and saved people and baptized people in the water. And I just remember growing up and singing, you know, bringing in the sheaves and, <laughs> you know, we've got one more mountain lord to climb. That was our big thing. Um, but then my mom got out of it, you know, as I was in elementary, out of elementary school and started her own career. Today she's a family law attorney in Northern California, so her life took a lot of different turns too. Um, but um, Barbara with playing guitar was the thing that really made me feel like, oh yeah, this is really cool and really fun, and I can do this too. There was actually no support system for it. It was just that it came from her family. You know, I didn't own a guitar. We wouldn't play, you know, her instruments. And then I started dating a guy that was in a band at the local Air Force Club. But he was a guitar player in this band, and I ended up joining his band. And his, he was in a phenomenal, and still is a phenomenal guitar player. His name is Lee Byington. Um, but he had this idea, because he was from the Midwest, that girls didn't do that. That, you know, when I started dating him, he was like, oh, no, girls don't play guitar. Girls sing, or they, you know, run the sound, or they do the lights, or... So when I was together with him for a couple years, I never played guitar again. I sang backups in his band and went on tour with him and did lights and helped with the sound and hauled gear and you know did anything and everything that I could. And then when I was in college in Kansas City, um, after we had broken up, I kind of ended up there and ended up going to school there. And um, I got a job. I was always the girl that was in college but had the four jobs. So I worked at a comedy club as a cocktail waitress, and I worked as, as the concert scene uh, stir for Kansas City for this magazine out of St. Louis called The Concert Scene Magazine. And they sent me to Kemper Arena or any you know, big area, big um, concert around town to go interview bands. Now I'm on the other side of it, and I'm interviewing bands, and I just remember uh, watching these bands in the 40,000-seater arenas, you know, um, Oingo Boingo was one of the bands I remember. They were up and coming then. And just being really phenomenally blown away by all the talent and thinking, well, this is something that I love. This is something that I really want to do. And, uh, but not really understanding how to do it. You know, not uh, knowing, you know, to go buy a bass and then take lessons and get a guitar. What was it that I wanted to do? And just, you know, how you flounder when you're like trying to figure things out and you get out of college and so I got out of college and I moved back to California but I moved to Los Angeles and um, and then I had a very wealthy boyfriend one day ask me what did I want for my birthday and I was like you know I really want to play bass guitar I used to play acoustic guitar and he was the kind of person that would say let me just empower you what is what is it that you want to do and I would say, okay, so I think a bass guitar, that's really what I want to do. So he took me down to the local music store in uh, LA. Not a clue what to do. You know, uh, walked in, a guy said, you want a bass? Sold us a very expensive Fender P bass. I, you know, I locked myself in a closet. I went to a, a Dick Grove School of Music for five minutes. I wanted to play with a pick. I loved the bands. Uh, the Psychedelic First, Tim Butler, I loved, you know, The Cure, Simon Gallup. These were like the influences. And you know, we're talking early 80s, Valley Girls, very, you know, hip. Um, I had seen The Go-Go's on Saturday Night Live, I think it was 1980. It was like the first time I'd ever seen a girl band, a girl band of all girls on stage playing on television. I mean, my first experience, of course, was Susie Quattro in Happy Days. I saw her in 76 playing 
leather Tuscadero, and I was like, okay, that's whatever she's doing is like the coolest thing ever. That's what I wanted. I didn't have enough know-how to know that would be bass guitar later in my life, you know. But I remember seeing her with the feather and the, you know, the hair, and I'm going, oh my God, she's like the coolest thing ever. And uh, and then I saw the Go Go's in the '80s. So here I am in Los Angeles in the early '80s, going, okay, I want to play bass in a band. Can't find an instrument that I can play. Go to the music store, try to like hang out. And it's either you're going to want to sleep with somebody that's working there, or there's just really no opportunity for you. There's no girls. There's no sense of community. There's nobody there for me to really feel comfortable asking questions with unless I'm dealing with a guy, which is okay, except that you're trying to explain to them, well, you know, when I hold the bass like this or the acoustic guitar like this, it smashes my breast. They don't understand that concept, you know. So, you mean, like, there's a pocket full of girls in Los Angeles, and we all have our you know, complaining sessions where we're going, you know, it's really tough to be a chick in a man's world and play guitar, you know, it's like this whole like soap opera dynamic is happening and it's like, okay, we're going to join a girl band and we're going to kick their butts and we're going to be better than they are, you know, so I'm in this like heavy metal band in the late 80s, I mean, hair out to here, we've got a billboard on the side of the Roxy Theater, we're called Lipstick. And, you know, we'd run to the front of the stage, we'd all drop on one knee together and windmill to the right and then windmill to the left. I mean, we are, we got it down, <laughs> you know. And, I mean, it's obviously not so great or I'd be a millionaire rock star today. But, I mean, there's, you know, 10 girl bands in L.A. doing that. And maybe a couple other bands on the East Coast, but it just was such a, there's just, if we're going to have a community, we have to make it ourselves. And then, of course, the Riot Girl happened, the Riot Girl movement happened in Seattle, and that brought a whole other different, you know, girls can do this too. But it wasn't my experience in LA. My experience in LA was I played in an alternative rock band, I played in a punk rock band, I played in a heavy metal band. You know, um, Michael Still from the Bangles was doing it with the Bangles, Kathy Valentine and the Go-Go's was doing her Go-Go's thing, you know, and they were having really great success with what they were doing. And then there was a, like a lot of girl bands that were still trying to identify what their success would be and that was us and bootleg and um, war bride and <laughs> you know um, and vixen was one of the bands and you know that's kind of what our band was like was vixen so it was here's this girl you know in my 20s now that's experiencing this life of walking into music stores and not being f made to feel like i can get anything unless i'm with a guy and it just used to be like really you know, really uncomfortable. And then you had to like get the respect. You know, you had to go out and play and then all of a sudden you'd get a name and then all of a sudden you'd walk in and then you go, oh yeah, well she really actually knows how to play. You know, and then I started, you know, like I hired a tech to help me that was like a well-known guy that people respected and, you know, did my um, play in 200 bands in five years. So, you know, I would have that experience of playing out. And so it was really, I remember it just being really, God, it's just us against the world feeling, you know. And, um, and then I got married and did it for a long time and stopped and uh, decided I wanted to have a kid and had a baby girl. I was with my husband, Michael, from Schechter Guitars. Uh, Michael was working in retail on Sunset Boulevard. Um, he's, when we very first started dating, he totally could see what my, my issues with 
like music stores were because he worked in one and trying to find a guitar that really fit me so he ended up getting a bass made for me he ended up talking to ESP guitars about it and they ended up helping me get a bass and then endorsing me as an artist which brought me to NAMM and you know 92 93 94 you know as an artist which is a whole different experience than as a manufacturer to come to the show um, and NAMM was so completely different then too um, so, uh, you know, so because we were dating and then he saw like all of the different experiences I had as a female musician, as my boyfriend at the time, he really understood how difficult it would be. I mean, just to get a pair of strings sometimes, you'd get an attitude of, you know, what do you manage the band? It's like, no, I play. I know I look like a girl, <laughs> you know, there's girls that are out there doing it. So he understood like that thing that I was always dealing with. So once again, we are listening to Tish Ciravello on the Music History Project. Thought this would be a great time to plug the NAM website a little bit. Head on over to NAM.org to see the video web clip of this interview, as well as a web clip of Tish's 2012 interview. You can also see a vignette that we put together about women innovators in the music products industry, which features Tish as well as other women in the music industry. It's a great watch. It's about 10 minutes long and totally worth it. So I highly encourage everyone to head over to nam.org and check those out. Up next, we're going to be hearing more from Tish talking about how she came up with the idea for Daisy Rock and her first NAM show. And then I had my baby daughter, Nicole, and um, I just hadn't played bass in a while. We were still doing, so we had a band together called Stun Gun at the time. And I was doing a couple of things, but it just, you know, at that age, I was like, yeah, I've done it. It was fun. Um, really had enjoyed being a musician, but just didn't know how to fit that life into being a mom. I was a stay-at-home mom at the time. And then she did this drawing, and she drew out this daisy on a piece of paper. And I remember, like, looking at it and then putting the neck on it and then drawing the headstock on it and going, okay. What if she had a different experience than I did? What if she walked into a music store and there were girls that worked there and there was instruments on the wall. There was actually a guitar where she would go, oh my God, it's pink, or you know, oh my God, it's purple. It's something that would make her go, oh my God, I'm in the right place. I belong here. It's a sense of community again. Like, I'm a girl and this is cool because I'm in a music store. And this is a lot different of an era than where I come from. This is, you know, 99, 2000. Now all of a sudden you're seeing shows on television where the girl plays the guitar all day long at school and then goes home and writes these songs about her experience on, you know, at school. And it was a lot different of a time. And um, so with that drawing, Daisy Rock Girl Guitars was formed in my mind. And I took that drawing to my husband, and he had taken Schecter guitars from this, you know, well-known parts body company from the 70s and 80s to, he had started at Schecter, I believe in 97. Um, and he had taken this company from nothing, really a smaller company, not really nothing, but a smaller company, and then had come out with one of the very first seven strings to really change the dynamic of the guitar industry with his seven string and Schecter and they started becoming bigger and bigger company. And so he has an innovative mind, a very creative, innovative mind on, he wasn't the guy that, that would have said no. I have gone back to this point in my life and thought of a lot of the guys I'd been with, you know, as uh, in a relationship, well, not a lot, maybe a couple. Um, there was a couple of guys that would he like the first guy was telling me about that was saying, no, 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 girls don't play. You know, it would have been, 
anybody else, I think, in that on that day that I went to Mike with this drawing, maybe wouldn't have seen the potential, but he saw the potential in it, of my idea of saying, we should make something called a girl guitar. And he looked at me and said, well, what's a girl guitar? And I said, okay, so let's talk about all the problems I've had trying to find the right bass for me to play. Let's talk about how heavy it's been. Let's talk about how hard it's been to put your hand around the neck. Let's talk about lighter weight, you know, slimmer neck profile. I mean, these are things that we sat down and said, what makes a girl want to play guitar? What stops a girl today from playing guitar? And that's when we started making this definition. And um, I went to Tetsu, his luthier, and he said, okay, I said, we need to make, now we need to transition this concept that we have on paper to wood. And, you know, some people say, well, you didn't really invent the wheel. I really feel like we did invent the wheel, reinvent the wheel for the guitar. We, in 40 some odd years of big guitar companies making massive amounts of guitars, nobody had actually considered the take for the woman. Now, women play guitar, they've played guitar for many, you know, hundreds of years. You see girls playing acoustic guitar from the 1800s and, you know, it's much more popular to play parlors and it's not like I'm going, oh, women didn't play guitar before I came along. I'm saying no one wanted to inspire younger girls to pick up guitar and make professional, really cool looking, but yet be it a girl guitar for this industry. And so... With Tetsu, we designed and created the very first girl guitar. And the company was just, it's really hard to, to say like where we were then to where we are now. It's so different from what my first concept was. I think if you went to a seminar and said, you know, what kind of company are you going to start to make a million dollars? You would never think, oh, I'll make a girl guitar uh, company because first of all, it had never been had done before. And that's a challenge in itself to try to launch something. But then in this MI industry that we're all in, that, um, you know, embrace the idea eventually, <laughs> um, it was a different channel. You know, I had people at my first NAMM show, I had a three by three in a corner. And I had people walking by it going, huh? <laughs> you know? And then I had, it would be one way or the other. They would be completely like, what is that? To, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. And of course, every girl that came to the NAMM show was at my booth. I mean, every little kid to female that was in the industry came by my booth because, what, someone's making something for the girls? Really? In this industry? Really? And so that was the first, I remember hearing the word cute a thousand times the first NAMM show. And that was my first NAMM show for where I said, okay, this is something that the industry does not have. This is something that needs to happen. Um, I'd taken the, the guitars previous to that NAMM show in November. The NAMM show was in January. I'd taken the first couple of samples I had to the Rocker Girl Conference in Seattle, the very first Rocker Girl Conference. And I thought that that was really a testament on it, whether it would be accepted. Because here you have all the Riot Girls from the Riot Girl movement. Courtney Love's there. I get her to sign one of my very first samples I had made that's now in the Museum of Making Music. Um, and it, it was, people would come by and go, and still, you know, you'd have the, just the blank look. Like, well, why would you make a girl guitar? Like, why would that happen? And I'd say, because I really want more girls to experience playing guitar and making music. This is my mis mission statement for my company, doing whatever it takes to make more females play music. 
and play guitar. That's the mission. So with that mission, you have to support every side of it. Um, and so that was like my first eye-opening experience was the Rocker Girl Conference. And then when I did my first NAMM show, I was shocked that there wasn't anything out there like it. I remember just going and going, how could I possibly be the first? You know, why would it be the 2001 and somebody's went, oh, you know what, maybe we'll make something for the women. And I just remember then I got mad. <laughs> you know, then I started getting really angry about it. Like, oh, okay, because we're in a male-dominated, I'm right back in the music store in 1982 trying to buy something and being completely treated like I don't have a clue and mad and just being like, this is not fair. And then I thought, oh, but this is a real opportunity. You know, there's, there's, such, there's been such a changing of the tide from when I started the company to where we're at today. You know, to be Leather Tuscadero, one girl playing one bass guitar one time on a television show one time in the 70s that I'd saw to my kids watching Nickelodeon and the Disney Channel and that's all they see is girls playing guitar, Freaky Friday. You know, it's just, it's a normal way of life for them. So I just love the fact that society's changed it, that it's, my concept at first was, well, let's just try to get every mom or every parent to understand that as your daughter is going to pick up clarinet or flute or piano, she can also pick up guitar because look, there's guitars on the wall that are designed specifically for her to play. It's not something that's brown that just looks like, okay, you can, you know, there's something there that she's going to walk by and go, whoa, 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 the flute's cute, mom, but did you see the daisy? <laughs> you know, that was the impetus behind what I wanted to do and I did with this company is to make that girl stop dead in her tracks when she sees a guitar and go, oh, I can do that. And I thought, then we can get 50% of the girls playing. You know, we had started, I think it was 4% of the guitar playing population was female when I started. It's now up to, and they, these are some statistics that we get in from the different magazines. 15% since I started the company. But get it to be 50. You know, as every guy plays guitar, every girl should. As there is every guy band out there, or every guy in a band, there should be a girl in a band. That, in my world, in my mind, that's how it works, and that's why it should happen. But I could have never done what I did, you know, where it's at today and where I'm, it's going. I mean, it's just not going away. So many people in this economy is now like, you know, what's going on with your company? Are you guys surviving? Well, we're not only surviving, we're going to thrive because we are building things that haven't happened before in this industry. And we'll always be the only girl guitar company because we are the only girl guitar company. Since I started the company, there's been people that have come in and that's really cool in the in the regards that it's just opened more doors i look at it like that you know there's a couple of big guitar companies out there that never before would have had a female working in their business or in their artist relations department or in their development department now they do because they see that my company has done something that they need to now address for their company so i think you know some people are saying you should be so mad about you know these people ripping you off and i'm like you know i'll always own the color pink because i started it you know other people will come out and try it and they've come and gone you know some of them tried and really failed at it well that wasn't really nice to say but some of them really tried and failed at it but um i just there's no threatening feeling i guess from it is what i'm trying to say it's to me it just makes it grow and it gets bigger and bigger as the more people that you know come into it and will always be the first and I feel like we'll still always be the only two girl guitar company. Um, but what I was saying before, I think, is what's really made the company work 
is the people that we've got involved with it. Um, to launch a company with Michael Cervolo, to have him help me see the vision and define and the very, you know, that this guitar not only had to look good, but it had to sound the best. It had to, with every guy that would ever pick up this guitar, because it's going to be a joke to him to pick up a star guitar, it's going to have to blow him away. He's going to have to say, oh my God, this plays better than the $3,000 guitar I own. And it sounds better than most guitars I own. It, has to it had to have that impact. And in order for me to have guitars that made that impact, I really had to surround myself with the people that could help me make that. And Michael was the first one that helped with that vision and made those guitars in the beginning, what you know, we still stand for today, pro quality. Um, but it's relationships with people too. It was getting Seymour Duncan pickups on board and Evan Scott from Seymour Duncan really believing in what I'm doing from the very beginning. And Dario, you know, the strings. I mean, I'm not trying to discount other companies out there saying they're not as good, but I'm saying these are the people that came on with me and believed in my dream in the beginning. You guys absolutely love this. This is such a fascinating story. And she is so articulate. You know, it's so neat to sort of relive this with her. And it also reminds me of this wonderful concept that innovation is still out there. You know, it wasn't just Leo Fender in 1948. It's Tish, you know, it's it's people right now thinking of new creative ways, but with the mission of helping other people and fixing a problem. And I think that, uh, as Mike said, it's uh, very exciting to see what she has been able to do for this industry. Um, and um, you can see it every time you go into a music store, for sure. It also is interesting to me that uh, you can see that the NAM show has actually changed in color uh, since the uh, Daisy Rock guitars first started coming out because a lot of different booths now have different color instruments, not just guitars, but of course we know some in guitars. And okay, that was around a little bit before her, but boy, not at the same level that you see it now. And I think that what's the bottom line here is that there are now instruments that are more accessible to a larger audience than had been before. And that is what all of us always truly want. So uh, hats off to her and all of those who have helped make these instruments uh, accessible to a different audience. Definitely uh, just incredibly innovative. And, and it's amazing, you know, like she said, where she, you know, she was shocked that it wasn't a thing already, you know, uh, and that's what innovation is, where you go, wait a minute, nobody's done this before? This is amazing. I'll, I'll do it then, you know. Uh, so we're going to get back into her interview, uh, and she's going to talk a little bit more about um, working with Alfred Publishing and Ron Manis and partnering uh, with them on the uh, distribution of Daisy Rock guitars. So here is Tish. But you know, I was with Michael at Schechter for a very short time. I mean, I started with him there with the with my guitar company, so he could help me understand the business and you know I'd been at Schechter before I did Daisy Rock so I did understand the guitar business but for you know the last nine years I've been in business I was only there for two and then I um, went to Alfred Publishing and Alfred Publishing now distributes you know Alfred Music Publishing distributes Daisy Rock guitars and that was a really interesting relationship to start um, because for one you would never had a publisher before that would actually distribute a guitar company and it's a really fun story to talk about because uh, Ron Manis, who's owner of Alfred uh, Music Publishing, I don't know if you know them. Okay, oh, yeah. good. 
um, they have such a rich history in this business. You know, 80 years as a premier music publisher and um, their company, I had, I had no idea who they were before I got to know Ron. And he had approached me about writing a book. He had saw my company online and approached me and said, hey, I think what you're doing is really cool and innovative. We should do a book. We should do a girl's guitar method. And um, that was just like this one idea of why don't we get together and write this book and this is really, and I thought this is such a cool thing. I go back to being in the 70s and playing acoustic guitar with my girlfriend thinking to sit in a room and then we like had had this book that was just designed for us and it's not any other different method than any other method out there that teaches guitar because teaching guitar is teaching guitar is teaching guitar, right? It's just the fact that there's girls doing it and there's girls sitting cross-legged on their bedroom floor doing it and that's what I was doing, that was my experience. And I thought, God, that's just so empowering. You know, I watch my daughters and I know for myself the way that you're empowered really is to see other people doing what you want to do. You know, you go and watch, I saw Care Bears on Fire, one of our uh, girl bands from Brooklyn, Sunday at the House of Blues in Los Angeles. They're all in the fifth grade, sixth, I mean seventh grade. Um, and you know, they're great. They're a punk rock band. And it's like, I take my kids, but if I would have saw that when I was, you know, 11 years old, it would have been like, uh, yeah, everybody should do that. And that's why my two daughters are having that experience now. Um, but anyway, so Ron got, gets a hold of me and we start writing this book together. And I start talking to him more and more about my dreams for my company and what I'm trying to do. And we, he came up with this really great concept of, what if a music publisher distributed guitars? How innovative and creative would that be? And we started just like as a fun journey together to start looking at how that relationship would work out. And all of a sudden, it made a lot of sense because he's you know, growing his family business and I'm wanting to grow my business, but I can't really do that with Schechter because you know, Schechter is guys and it's you know, 666 and the, I, mean, I have the greatest respect for Schechter guitars. And my husband and his team, you know, Mark Lacord is one of the people that helped me in the beginning and Greg was one of the people that really helped me in the beginning and Johnny, I mean, they were there for me, but I had to grow what I wanted to do, but I couldn't do it really in that environment because their environment is something that they're really great at. But girl guitar environment is like, what? <laughs> so you would come, you know, when I was like in at the NAMM show and I was part the back wall of the Schecter booth one year, you know, so you'd see all the Schecters in the front and then you'd come around the back and then I had a wall where you'd see Daisy Rocks. I mean, you could just see the the disconnect with people, you know, like, okay, I'm going to get 20 of the black Hellraisers. Oh, but look at the Daisy, <laughs> you know, and we knew the dynamic was odd, you know, Michael and I did, but it, but it worked. It wasn't that it didn't work, but we could see the disconnect with the dealers and, you know, so I really wanted to grow the company. So when I was talking to Ron about that, we hatched this idea of, let's do this with Alfred Music Publishing and let's have them distribute the guitar. So then I went into business with Alfred and that was just, and it, I'm still there. It has been one of the most phenomenal ways to grow your company because Ron brings so much different talent to the table with the people that he has on his team. You know, and it, they, they're all different teams at Alfred. They have the MI team, the keyboard team, and the school and church team, and the band team, and they, you know, he had all these just kind of different resources that I could use to grow this guitar company that I had started like two years before that. And that's really what 
makes the company what it is today. It's, I know that I'm the spokesperson for it. It was my idea. It's been my experience. But it's by no means me. It's we. It's you know the Rich Lukowski and the Ron Manis and oh I'm going to forget somebody and they're going to hate me. But you know Tommy and uh, Ronnie P and Scott and the girls and it's it's the culmination of all this really wonderful talent that is every day saying okay you know let's make this company thrive and it's a really fun it's it's a fun fun job in the respect that you don't do it for the money because that's not that you know what you do it for and that's just don't ever do a girl guitar company because it'll drive you crazy money wise that's not my forte I'm the creative you know um, and you don't do it because it's a nine to five. I've had a million of those jobs. I work all the time, <laughs> you know. You do it for this passion. You do it because these people on a daily basis, and mostly little girls, you know, 10, 11, 12, stumble onto our website and stumble into one of our communities or stumble into something that we're supporting. And it changes their life. And every day we get these letters and these emails and these videos from girls that say, I discovered Daisy Rock and I wrote the song and the song has made me feel like I have self-esteem and it makes them feel like they belong or if they're if they don't want to belong it makes them feel like they don't belong that they're different and it's it has so many different meanings to so many different girls and it's because how we try to market you know the company that we want to make guitars out there for every single type of girl we want the pink guitar for the girl and the punk rock you know black guitar for that girl and the high-end guitar you know we make the bengal signature guitar and we make wanda jackson signature guitars and so we have this spectrum it's not what is the age it's the fact that they're a female and that's you know that's a huge calling and it takes a lot of people to make that guitar string tune itself at daisy rock guitars and it's because i have a really wonderful team of people behind my concept and I'm completely humbled by it all the time when I think you know I just had an idea I just had this well, wait a second that's not fair that no one's made guitars for girls before and because I had that idea there's girls that don't get into doing the wrong things with their life they're doing what I feel you know it's giving them the opportunity to have a choice to what they want to do with their life you know when I was like I said in the 70s you were like an odd duck out if you played guitar in a band and that's just not what the reality is for girls today that are you know preteens and teens it's the amount of talent out there is so amazing and the fact that I've had any part of that is just really humbling for me and for Ron Manis my business partner for my husband Michael Cervolo who's been you know there from the beginning and really made it start um, and then, like I said, Ron, who's kept it just on the frontier of being the new and innovative, the new and innovative company. I think the benefit of uh, playing guitar, playing bass as a female is kind of where my world is coming from. And that's where I, what world I live in all the time. And that's the kind of parents that I deal with, you know, that have their daughters playing. Um, it gives them such a sense of self-esteem and it gives them not only just something to do but in today's age with computers and playstations and you know there's my kids you know YouTube on the computer on the cell phone it's that I think it gives them a sense of just having that thing that's not electronic I mean yeah you can play electric guitar but it's that creating something here you know um, I think music really really matters to kids to be involved with it I think it really helps them define their personality, define what they like, what they don't like. 
make the transition between what they're hearing you know on the radio to what they might be able to play and write about in their own life um, I'm watching my you know, oldest daughter going into middle school this year and that's such a hard age I, everybody has their middle school you know horror stories and it's um, oh, I just remember it being so hard and I'm hoping that she does, what she kind of does right now is what she writes lyrics about it. You know, the secret, and why are people so mean, and why did she say that, and the jealousy, and you know, that, to her, for to learn music and then be able to express herself emotionally through her music is going to help her get through that age. Um, and that's what I think is really, really important about it. You know, I know that there's a lot of statistics out there like Little Mozart, and. It says, you know, music helps your brain with math and with English and makes you do other things later in life much better. And that's good. They can all talk about that. But I'm talking about a very personable experience as just having your daughter be able to play guitar and express herself through that. It's as if she was writing a book or, you know, uh, writing a song is like that. It's saying what you might not be able to say to your best friends or to your parents. It's what you feel like saying and it's coming through you and out through this music. I think guitar and bass, you know, do that for girls. Answer the question? Yeah, I love it, yeah. <laughs> and for you, would you say the same thing? I mean, for your own personal experience, being having music such a big part of your life has done what? Well, it's really, obviously today, it defines my life. Um, you know, I, I think that there's the thing that, um, when I wanted to learn how to play bass, is I just felt it. There was something inside me that just, you know, everybody was like, why didn't you play guitar? Why didn't you play drums? I think everybody kind of identifies with what they feel inside of them. And then to just write music about what I was going through. You know, uh, today I play in a punk rock band and it's just a heck of a lot of fun, you know, and I couldn't imagine not doing it. You know, that's, it's like riding a bike to me. I just know how to do it. And when I get a chance to, I do it and it's a heck of a lot of fun. And writing songs, you know, they're not about, you know, the secret that my best friend told my other best friend, <laughs> but almost, <laughs> you know, at my age, there's not a lot of changing in the, the, everybody's still in high school from what I can tell, but, <laughs> but I couldn't imagine not being in a band. I mean, when I told you like the story earlier about I had stopped, and then I, what I failed to tell you is in that year time that I stopped, I wrote two screenplays and did an independent film and did a script. And, you know, I just could not, it's just not me to just, oh, I'm going to be a stay-at-home. I was like, oh, I'm a stay-at-home mom. Yeah, I go to the gym five days a week and then I write for four hours a day. And then, of course, we recorded three songs. But, um, but you're a stay-at-home. Yeah, I was a stay-at-home. I didn't work a real job, you know. I still don't know if I work a real job, but... Um, but yeah, I think it's really, it, it helps define your personality. And I just couldn't imagine not doing it. It would just seem, and it's really weird to me when people don't, you know. You try to have these experiences with people and you go, wait, you don't, you don't play anything? <laughs> you know, what? <laughs> you know, and it's kind of the same thing. You know, I hear all these stories all the time about, from women that are about my age that say, you know, I played a little while and then it just didn't seem to have any support or really didn't find anything out there that really spoke to me or, you know, and this was again, you know, the late 70s and the early 80s, there was just nothing out there that really, you know, if you were going to do it, you're, you know, on the fringe of society as a woman. And, um, you know, I remember going to so many auditions uh, in the early 80s when I lived in LA and 
like come out to this you know park at um, like an industrial park we've got a ring come out here at eight o'clock at night and I'd talk to some guy named Ryan on the phone for 10 minutes and then I'd be like yeah I can't go out there by myself <laughs> you know I'm a girl and that's that's why it's so different and that's I try to get men to understand that yeah it's just a guitar but our experience with it is completely different than what your experience is you know from the fearful factor of being a mom and knowing that my kids might be put in that situation where they're leaving a club at 2:30 in the morning and hauling gear and I'm like you don't leave by yourself and you don't you always have an escort to the car and you know guys don't think about those kind of things you wouldn't think about going to audition for a band at 8 o'clock at night as being a potentially dangerous situation for you every female does so it's just a different experience for us and getting back to what you were saying about your own experiences in going to a music store, do you think that's changing thanks to your guitar? Do you think that the, uh, the people behind the counter have more of an idea about how to approach girls that come in? Oh, definitely. Um, when, <laughs> when I started over at Alfred, one of the best things that we started trying to do is to try to train uh, store employees across the, the states. And that was, we had a little training manual, we'd give them a little test, and then if they could answer all the questions right, we'd give them a Starbucks gift card. Like, how do you deal with a woman when she walks into a music store? Do you look at her and feel like making her invited into the store? Or, <laughs> you know, uh, what do you know about girl guitars, too? Do you know why Tish started the company of girl guitar? You know, so we would do this, like, this 10-question questionnaire, and then we would send it to all the different music stores and, uh, and just try to empower the people that are working there. Of course, there's so much turnover but I just felt like it would be like viral that once we started training different guys at different music stores it would just become something that everybody knew mm -hmm. and so and then we started that in 2003 2004 and I feel like it would be weird now if you walked into a music store and they did not know what a Daisy Rock guitar was or the fact that there was a girl guitar on the market they that would be an odd thing instead of it was odd back then to know what it was so we really went on this campaign to try to train these different employees at different you know, music stores across the US and spend money. I mean, we just keep throwing money at it and it, it eventually worked, you know. Um, and then we did, you know, like all the advertising in the, in the guitar players of the world, the magazines and guitar worlds and, and um, just to have it be recognized and have the brand be recognized. This is a pro quality guitar that girls play. And, um, but, you know, the mission statement always, doing whatever it takes to get more females to play guitar and, and enjoy music, is really what we're about. So, did I answer your question? Because yeah, you I know I just went, I sometimes I, love, I get I going. <laughs> so indeed, I really appreciate it. I mean, how cool, I mean, just on that one point, it must feel for you to know that you've had that impact. That you, that you can't go into a store without people knowing you know, that there is a girl guitar. Even if they don't carry it, they know about it. They know that it exists. And that was what was the whole concept. Like I said, it's really changed from what I started in 2000. Mm -hmm. And I was at the Rocky Girl Conference with five guitars to 2009. It's just been nine years of there's now this guitar company that exists and people understand that it's out there. And, um, and it still is my drive and it's my passion to just continue on this trek of I want to go out and conquer all the other industries and have people that are not in the MI industry know about it. It should be a household name. It should be that, that aspirin type thing that, you know, it empowers females of all ages. It makes women and girls feel like they can do anything. And that's really, really intense and very, very important 
as a girl growing up or as a you know a woman so that's my that's kind of where I'm at today now that I feel like I've kind of done this part of it I want it just to be you know in for the next 40 years to become a household name and I don't know why I say 40 but it just you know again we're it, I feel like this is just one part of it it's going it'll always be here it's kind of like speaking to Leo Fender you know 40 years ago what Fender is today is where Daisy Rock will be Alrighty, well, that will do it for our 2009 NAM oral history interview with Tish Siravello. Such an inspiration. I mean, she just really paved the way for a lot of people to get involved in music that weren't involved before. And women especially, she just opened the door. So many opportunities that she created. And it's it's just a privilege to be in the same industry as someone as her. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was great to kind of hear... You know, we like you mentioned, it was a 2009 interview, and uh, Daisy Rock was founded in 2000. So it's a really great little snapshot of uh, the first almost 10 years of the company and kind of how much she was able to grow and what she was able to do in those first 10 years, I think is uh, just really fascinating and very inspiring. Well, gosh, me being last, you took all the good stuff, you guys. I totally agree with both of you. I think it is really, truly an honor to be in the same industry with innovative thinkers, including her. And I, that's what we love. I mean, I, I've said it before, but I think the real fabric of why most of us are in the music industry is because we know how important music is in our own personal lives. And we want to see that in other lives. And we can point to some very specific people to say, wow, that person like Tish did that. She changed it. She allowed people to play, as Mike said, that maybe weren't able to before. Um, so I just think it's a, it's a true pleasure to have interviewed her. And um, I look forward to the day that we can maybe have an update. It'd be nice to do that. Um, but this was a fantastic opportunity. I want to thank you both for your work in getting this done and all the listeners who have encouraged us over these years to continue with this podcast. Very much appreciated. So we will uh, have another one for you in a couple of weeks. Until then, bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.